Welcome to a very special edition of Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm still your host, Eric Cohn. And for this very special edition, we are going to be discussing the fourth season of the Netflix show Stranger Things. So it should go without saying that if you are a fan of the show and have not finished watching the season yet, stop this episode right now. Finish watching it. Drop whatever it is that you're doing. If you're driving, pull over, finish streaming it on your phone, and then you can resume listening to this podcast episode. But even though this is a special edition of this podcast, all the same rules apply, such as I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. For this very special episode, and I don't mean that in the way the TV series usually mean very special episodes, like it's going to get very serious here in a minute and there's a deep moral lesson, or there may be moral lessons, so maybe I do mean it in that way. Uh, for this very special episode, I'm joined by Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. And Daniel Boss, Acton's media production specialist, the producer of this fine podcast, the man who's normally behind the glass here on the other side of the glass with us for this conversation. So perhaps the best place to lead into this, there's, I think, a number of reasons why I wanted to talk about it, because I think there are there are plenty of fluff shows out there that don't really have all that much to say. And I thought that there were some interesting things um, and have been some very interesting things in Stranger Things over the first three seasons. But I thought this fourth season was particularly interesting. Uh, so, of course, if you're listening to this, I imagine you're already familiar with the premise of the show. But, of course, there's this, all of the supernatural happenings around the small town of Hawkins, Indiana. Um, some of it, again, is drawn from things that happened in American history, such as the, um, you know, Eleven and the the characters. They make reference to the MK Ultra experiments there. Um, so there's there's a lot of interesting stuff surrounding it. What What always appealed first and foremost to me. Uh, the Duffer brothers who made this show is they managed to do something that I just thought was fascinating. They set a show in the 1980s and perfectly captured like just the essence of the 1980s and the feel of the 1980s. And they did it while, at least as I watched the first season, it always felt to me like it was it could have been a show from the 1980s. But for the advanced production values and special effects, it felt like it could have been a 1980s show. And it was just clearly this is an era of television and entertainment that they've loved uh, and embraced. But I think the best place to lead in on this is, uh, Dylan, you wrote a piece for us about some of your takeaways from season four. So why don't we start there and, and then see where we go? Sure. Yeah. So my post uh, was there's there's uh, I guess I'll back up. Uh, there's basically three, uh, I guess, kind of four um, parallel storylines all happening, all Interrelated, although we'll maybe talk about that um, in a bit of how well they were related to one another. Um, but you have the kids in Hawkins. Uh, they're not really kids. They're teenagers at this point. Some of them are actual adults, uh, such as uh, 
fan favorite Steve, uh, who works at the video store now. Um, he's graduated from high school. Uh, the he's biggest, a young adult. The biggest suspension of disbelief that this show demands is not that any of these supernatural things could happen. It is for me to believe that people who are clearly like 21 years old are high schoolers. Yeah, well, so Steve <laughs> is, is not supposed to be. But yeah, occasionally right. some of the... Although with Eddie, uh, a new character this season... Uh, Part of his backstory is that he has uh, failed to graduate more than once. So, yes. and and you know, to be fair, like I feel like every school it does have that student who's like going on their twentieth birthday or whatever. So, uh, so they found ways to make it work. Uh, you know, it's not quite nine hundred two one zero. We haven't made it to nineties nostalgia yet, where everyone's like thirty four, but they're high school students. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so that's in in so what's happening in Hawkins is there's a series of deaths um, of. And it turns out, I think, to be all high school students Um, and mysterious uh, Eddie, the new kid uh, who is kind of this outcast um, Dungeons and Dragons dungeon master guy. uh, Metalhead. That's that's, that's how the the kids from the previous seasons get to know him. Yeah, he's a metalhead. Um, He gets blamed uh, for these murders. And so he's kind of on the run and they're trying to help him. Um, And there's this big mystery behind what's going on. The kids have this past experience with what's called the upside down, this shadow dimension of evil horrors that's constantly, you know, breaking into Hawkins and into our world through it. Um, And they, of course, have connections to uh, Eleven, um, also known as Jane, um, who is now living out in Colorado, I believe? California. California. Okay. Yeah, California um, with uh, the Byers family. So you have... Will and Jonathan out there uh, with Eleven. You have uh, all of the previous kids. Uh, so uh, Lucas, uh, I'm going to forget their name. Dustin. Mike, yeah, Dustin. Uh, they start at least in Hawkins, although Mike very quickly, I think in the second episode, ends up out in California. Um, and and then you have the older, uh, you know, the kind of the older sister, older brother uh, generation as well. So they're 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 trying to figure out what's going on with these murders. In the meantime, you've got um, everything going on with Eleven, which we can get into later. And then you have this one last loose end, which was like an after credits loose end from the season three. At the end of season three, um, you know, local hero, police chief uh, Jim Hopper uh, seems to have died but you get to the very end and it turns out no he's not dead he's in a soviet prison this is the cold war still it's the 1980s um and apparently the soviets have one of these terrible horrors uh that they're keeping at this prison it's not clear uh what's going on you just get kind of this teaser um so his story picks up Eight months later, he is just stuck in the Soviet Union in a prison camp uh, working and working on an escape. Um, So that's where my post focuses, because you have this fascinating interaction between uh, there's this corrupt guard named Enzo and then there's this smuggler named Yuri. Um, And there's, of course, Winona Ryder uh, and uh, uh this other character, Murray, who's the conspiracy theorist from season three, who comes to help her um, and help her break uh, Jim Hopper out of out of a Soviet prison. 
Um, and it's great. Uh, it's one of my, I, it could have been a standalone show or movie on its own. I feel like, uh, he, um, David Harbour, who plays Jim Hopper, has like an amazing sort of like Harrison Ford slash Nick Nolte sort of combo, uh, that I, I mentioned, like he, he has this herring escape at one point. Um, and you know, he's like riding a snowmobile and jumping over, you know, you know, uh, blowing up sheds and whatever, um, and uh, and he gets away, but then he gets captured, and then now he's Nick Nolte, and he gets like the the crap, the tar kicked out of him, and he wakes up, you know, not hungover, but uh, but still wakes up in a very bad way the next day, um, and uh, and but he just he does it perfectly, and it's so great to watch. Uh, and in the midst of it, you have this Yuri, um, and Yuri has uh, as a smuggler, he has a storehouse, a warehouse, which is an abandoned Orthodox church. Um, which as an Orthodox Christian especially struck me, uh, but certainly I think any religious person would be struck by that, that you have this church that's been closed down. And the story, for those who don't know, is that the Soviets were not very friendly towards religion in general, and especially the Russian Orthodox Church. And so this is a church that can probably pretty safely be assumed was just forcibly shut down by the government, abandoned, um, and this smuggler is using it as a storehouse. So Yuri has all of his stuff there, um, and he's supposed to be the one getting uh, Winona Ryder uh, and uh, and Murray. Sorry, I'm using an actor actor name and a character name uh, into the Soviet Union to get to get uh, uh, Chief Hopper and get him out. But it turns out he double crosses them because uh, he's like, you know what? I can get more money if I just tell your the prison warden that the guard is corrupt and that the prisoner is going to escape, and then I can bring these Americans who are wanted by the KGB for everything that happened in the previous season, uh, I can just bring them to Russia and bring them to the KGB, and they're going to give me even more money. So he double-crosses them, and they have this confrontation where um, Winona Ryder is appealing to him, saying— yeah, It's I, Joyce, if you Joyce, want to jump Joyce, into the Joyce, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Joyce is appealing to him. I'm, I'm very bad at the name, so uh, occasionally that'll happen. Uh, Joyce is appealing to him, saying, you know, Yuri, I have three kids. I have a family. You have to, you have to help me out. Um, and he says, you know what? Yuri has a family, too. Um, and it's this really interesting microcosm of uh, the problem Adam Smith pointed out, that if you're trying to make an exchange with someone, it generally doesn't work to say, woe is me. I need to feed my family. Instead, you need to appeal to them. And what do they need? Um, and Joyce doesn't do a good job doing that, but thankfully, Murray knows karate, and uh, they managed—they managed to kind of get the upper hand and crash land the plane. And um, and but you see this—you see really what happens when you break down uh, the religious core of a society uh, that was providing a lot of moral integrity and instruction for people. Um, and you break down uh, just basic free exchange and contracts and rule of law, you have enterprising people are still there, but they're forced into black markets. Uh, and so Yuri ends up willing to compromise in all sorts of moral ways um, simply because he has a family too. Um, and so I, I found that to be the most at least acting applicable storyline and, and the most interesting in that, in that he does have kind of a redemption towards the end that Enzo really confronts him about, you know, he used to be a, a war hero. Uh, he was a, a general um, and uh, or something like that. And uh, and, you know, he says, where where'd that guy go? You know, why are you acting such a coward now? Everybody needs your help. You have a role to play, too. There's a supernatural horror that's breaking out in Russia and it's happening in America and maybe we can do something to help. Um, and so he really challenges him and shames him and appeals to a sort of higher virtue. And that's the way he kind of transcends, um, you know, the dilemma of not really having much to exchange. Yeah, I thought the 
one of the interesting things, John Podhoritz pointed this out, is, is just how clearly anti-communist this show is. Like there is no gray area that's being painted about the the leadership of the Soviet Union, the, the apparatus of the Soviet Union. I think there is there's always in the same way we make this point about when we talk about the difference between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party, there is that differentiation to be made. Um, but that there is just no moral gray area about that. And I found that somewhat fascinating, especially when we're living in a media world right now. Like there's no villain that we don't believe deserves a backstory that makes you feel sympathetic for them. And, and in some sense, I understand that impulse that you say you know, in, in the real world, these things are often not that are not as simple as uh, they tend to be presented in media. But it is storytelling. It is entertainment. It is okay for Cruella DeVille to just be a bad person. Yeah. To not have to have this like, well, how did she become that? It's like this good person who's wronged. And um, you don't always have to have it end up that way. So I, I thought that the, the clear anti-communism was very interesting. And the point that you made as well about the Orthodox Church, just as a, you know, becoming the place where the smuggler is hiding things, just that clear symbolism of the godlessness of the Soviet Union, uh, I thought was a very, uh, very clear and, and clever way of driving that, uh, that home. Well, and your point about the, uh, about the villain, uh, this clear delineation with the Russians, it stands in stark contrast to Top Gun Maverick that just came out, where you know there's this nameless, faceless nationality that is the villain. And it's the Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so well defined in Stranger Things. I think that's like to your point, it's very important. I will say, uh, in addition, it is anti-communist, and that same same is true of uh, season three. Uh, Jordan Baller had a great post last year about that uh, that we could probably add to the the show notes. But it's also, I think, just anti-authoritarian. So I think the the highest uh, civil authority the show's writers want to trust is police chief. <laughs> right. And like local police chief. Um, the show the, is pro federalist. Yeah, I love it. The mayor in the in the third season was corrupt. Right. And, you know, you get into this season like the FBI is torturing people. And, you know, like it's it's not to say that there's no good guys uh, in government, but, but it's very skeptical of government use of force um, in general. And, you know, government bureaucracy and agencies, these kind of faceless en- entities that uh, bear this, you know, very um, formidable and powerful force in society, uh, they usually are not painted uh, in a, a very sympathetic way. What are the other storylines that stuck out to me very early in the season that I, I love that they were taking this on is – the way the dynamics of the high school work and that you have the dorks and the nerds who have been mostly the kids that you've been following around. And then you have the one who is living in both worlds, Lucas, who is on the basketball team, but he's not a prominent part of it. But he's still part of the group that plays Dungeons and Dragons. And now that they're in high school, you're seeing how those social dynamics typically work out, that they've gravitated the Dungeons and Dragons kids to Eddie, this um, presumably 20-year-old, failed to graduate a couple times, uh, metalhead. And the cool kids, the, the, the athletes, the jocks, uh, you see them moving in this direction of, oh, they're, they are absolutely going to bring up the satanic panic from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was... Interesting and and relevant to our current circumstances because there's this – I referenced this book 
all the time, this But What If We're Wrong by Chuck Klosterman, trying to get us to look at the present the way that we look at the past. And I think this is another example of how we would benefit from that, that there are plenty of moral panics uh, that I think persist in our society right now. In fact, I was just um, just started to listen to an episode of the New York Times podcast, The Argument, where Noah Rothman from Commentary is the guest who has a book out called The Rise of the New Puritans. And, and Jane Coaston, the host, is arguing with him about these kind of cancel culture mobs. This is all moral panic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's similar to the at least in, in its motivation, and I think its ethos, to the satanic panics of the 1980s. And one of the things that I thought was really struck me in the last episode, right? So there's this great, and we'll, we'll include a link to it because it, it works even if you haven't watched the whole, uh, the whole season. This great, you know, just absurd enough to be funny but still be awesome uh, part of the final episode where Eddie, and they're all in the upside down, this other dimension. He's on top of his trailer in the Upside Down playing Metallica's Master of Puppets. It's just an absolutely awesome scene. And yeah, there's like lightning and crazy right, right. It's like, vampire you know, bat horrors yeah, going like, you know, yeah. uh, Demon yeah. bats and yeah, all right. of the stuff that is is flying around him. It is incredibly awesome. And as they, you know, after they get safely inside the trailer, Dustin says to him, you know, most metal ever. <laughs> and what I what stuck out to me about that is someone who is a fan of Metallica. Uh, if you look at the lyrics of Master of Puppets, you know, again, Metallica, just like a lot of other metal bands at the time in this satanic panic um, period, you got this, you know, like the, they're somehow representing this like satanic message. The message of Master of Puppets is quite literally don't do drugs. <laughs> That is that is the master of puppets pulling your strings. Nancy Reagan put the song. It, it, I mean, it basically <laughs> is. Um, you know, like it, it, it becomes abundantly clear in the second verse with the line "Chop your breakfast on a mirror," and it's talking about how the drugs come to control you. Particularly, I think they had a friend who was a heroin addict, um, and even the structure of the song itself—that there's this very melodic guitar solo portion in the middle that is supposed to represent the kind of like the relief. Uh, that you feel when you inject heroin or you take one of these substances. Like all the problems seem to dissipate. Everything seems to be fine and great. And this like it comes out of that guitar solo, a very melodic section into this you know metal chugging, which is again meant to symbolize that like the problems always come back. This is not a way to actually escape from the issues you have in your life. It is a way to ruin your life. And it is just hilarious to me, you know, how this is one of the bands that was regarded as just a danger. You know, you've, you've got, again, 1980s, you know, Parents Media Research Council and Tipper Gore and hauling Dee Snyder and Bob Denver and all of these people uh, in Frank Zappa in front of Congress about the dangers presented by music. And quite literally, the message of this song is don't do drugs. I just thought it was hilarious. Oh, yeah, I can I can add to that. I, I thought it was a great scene. I had a friend on Facebook uh, kind of before I had gotten into it because I just binged it so I could write that blog post basically. So I waited Thank almost you. till it's yeah, almost till the part two was released. Uh, and I went through the whole season one. But so I had a friend on Facebook, right? And I think she had just watched an episode or two at that point. She's like, Oh man, I hope they lean 
hard into the satanic panic thing and actually make the Dungeons and Dragons games be what is conjuring the horrors from the upside down, which I thought would have been awesome. And there was a little bit there where I kind of started to wonder if she was right, but then it, they did not go in that direction. And it's probably for the best that they didn't, but, uh, but there, there is a sense in which like there, there was some genuine worry. I mean, it might seem kind of silly, but there are at least certain cultures. I mean, this is the same time that, you know, Christian fiction is turning in this kind of direction. It's becoming a big thing, and it maybe more in the 90s, but very much has this idea of, like, there are demonic forces at work in your community, and um, you need to be aware of them. You need to be on alert. Um, so it, it's something that is very real, very live option to a lot of people, and certainly was uh, at the time. Uh, and it's so great and so natural uh, of an inclusion in terms of cultural trends uh, for the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... It- you see the prominence of those kinds of movements and happenings. I think you could even possibly draw something like QAnon into it as well, where you've got this this belief in these kind of powers beyond our control. I mean, it, it is a very – it comes back to – and I, 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 next week I'm recording a podcast episode uh, for Acton Line on the psychology of conspiracy theories, which I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. But it is – Ostensibly, like we believe in these conspiracy theories. Like the satanic panic was ostensibly a conspiracy theory. Anti-Semitism is one of the oldest and broadest conspiracy theories uh, that I'm aware of. And like, why do we accept these conspiracy theories? Because you know, sometimes um, you know it, it starts with a a smaller incident, something that may be true, and we just don't want to accept the. I always use my analogy for this as the Kennedy assassination. And if you imagine a scale and on one end of it, you have John F. Kennedy, a consequential man just because he's president of the United States. And on the other side, Lee Harvey Oswald, this 22-year-old who like the Soviet Union didn't even want. And we just don't want to accept there's something in our brains that says we shouldn't accept that such an inconsequential person can do such a consequential thing and take the life of such a consequential person. And we want to add weight to that side of the scale. So it's the mob. It's – um, you know, it's Hoover, it's uh, Castro, it's the Soviets, it's all these different things, and it it it. So your your take is that it really was a magic bullet. <laughs> Do we have to go down this road? Right now? It, if you actually, if you look at the actual ballistics of it, what, the case of the magic bullet that was presented by Jim Garrison is inaccurate because where he has the positioning of John Connolly in the car is incorrect. He was seated a little bit in and a little bit lower, so the trajectory actually does line up. There is no magic bullet. You one heard it does here not, first, folks. One does not have to accept all of that. And it, again, there's something, too, about storytelling in all of this that makes it compelling. JFK by Oliver Stone is an incredible movie. It's a fantastic movie. It's all garbage. <laughs> Jim Garrison, like played by Kevin Costner, is yeah, not a I good know. person. He persecutes <laughs> the wrong person, probably because he's a homosexual, saying that he was involved in the Kennedy assassination. It, it is the power, though, of storytelling that it is such a captivating movie. Now, we are a little uh, uh, Yeah, well, I can circle back point. here. So... Uh, in defense of the conspiracy theorists, it is important to remember that there are real conspiracies sometimes, right? So, like, Watergate happened. There was a secret war in Laos. Like, these these things occasionally are real. Um, but I personally am just not quick to jump to that 
conclusion. So if anything, I err on the side of just kind of brushing that sort of thing aside. But I will say, um, in terms of the, the satanic panic side of this, um, sure, they didn't quite go down that road, as, as my Facebook friend had suggested. But the whole premise of the show is that there is such a thing as supernatural evil at work in this town, right? Um, so it's not that, and I mean, there's there's a great scene, and actually I mentioned this, it was the only scene really from a different storyline that I brought in, where there's like a, a student, or there's a, a, a town meeting, and the, the jock, you know, basketball team captain is really traumatized, his girlfriend was the first, the first victim, victim, yeah. you know, and, and one of the other players, <clears throat> and so he's trying to figure it out. And he, of course, thinks Eddie Munson is part of some kind of cult uh, because the kids who play D&D call themselves the Hellfire Club. Um, and so he's trying to find him and take him out. And he quotes uh, Romans and he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And for him, that means go get a gun and hunt down the nerd, which is a terrible misappropriation of a verse that I think would be great to explore in this context, that there is such a thing as evil. Um, and that's important and not just evil of circumstance or evil of social structures. Those are very real things as well, or evil of bad choices, but there are evil forces from a traditional Christian point of view. Um, doesn't mean that all evil should be reduced to them. In fact, that's a very huge error, um, and something people should avoid, but it's also something that we shouldn't just push away, you know, as, as the knee jerk, uh, kind of modern scientific impulse wants us to. Um, to be aware that sometimes things are a bit darker than we are comfortable with. And that's something I think the show does a great job drawing out, um, even in misguided uh, sort of ways. Well, and the speech that Jason gives is very, I mean, it's its really a sermon in a way. And it, it plays on, you know, what the, the townspeople's fears and that sort of conspiratorial nature of what's going on. And, you know, it is supernatural. It's just not the supernatural that they think it is. And I think that just, you know, plays it up even more and brings the town together in a frenzy. Yeah, definitely. I love that, like, you know, from the first episode, he is like the rah-rah, you know, basketball captain who can, like, give that speech. In fact, he even references a speech he gave in the pep rally where he's giving a speech, right? Uh, how he can give that speech it to the team. Like, it sounds like the Obama him, presidency. Yeah, right. Get <laughs> To get him back on, on you know, uh, pumped up and ready to go and focused. And then he's, like, constantly, like, like he's just, he's a bit one-dimensional, but, like, gloriously so in terms of like how consistent he is like always filling that role and trying to rally people to his cause um and unfortunately in a, in a very misguided way as the season plays out um but yeah and and it is it is kind of a sermon like he's quoting you know it's a small town uh basketball and the bible are things that go together especially <laughs> in, in indiana in america today not to mention in the 1980s right um you know that might be we a weird cultural quirk almost anywhere else in the world, but it is not in the United States. And it's something, yeah, they've done very well uh, just drawing all these different threads uh, from the 80s, from 80s pop culture, uh, from 80s cinema. Um, and, you know, the the first season was very kind of uh, Stand By Me meets uh, E.T. meets, you know, uh, 
some kind of Stephen King horror flick or something. Well, like and, that, and I think know. this particularly this season is so clearly inspired by eighties horror. Um I mean to the yeah. point where you get you know the one episode where you finally meet, you know, this uh supposed insane psychotic serial killer who killed his whole family that they think may be the genesis of what is going on in Hawkins. And you meet, you know, you finally meet this character and he's played by Robert Englund, who of course is the actor that plays Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street films. And one of the great parts about it, too, is you have to be very much into that culture to know that because Robert Englund plays it under a whole lot of prosthetics. So it's not as if it's just obvious that, like, oh, that's Freddy Krueger. It is is a great draw. And I think I had been playing a game with um, uh, my wife Becca as we watched, especially the last couple episodes, trying to catch all the different, like, movie references that they were making in the production of it. Like, there's one where, like, there's two opposing U.S. military forces. They do a raid on this facility. I think it's in Nevada. And... The setup of it is just almost purely ripped out of the very beginning of Star Wars A New Hope. It Mm. it is, you know, the stormtroopers coming through before Vader enters. Uh, Like You can just see, again, the inspirations for what was in the cultural ethos at that time that has all been put into this show, which is, again, I think was the first reason why I loved it. But to go back to what what Daniel was saying, um, what I like, too, is we think in this – in a society now, especially the, the people who are consuming this as a program that have lost a, I think a sense of um, the mysticism about things that are supernatural. Uh, we see this in, in declining religiosity. Uh, it, it is interesting that this show is presenting it so much in, in the way that you described with this, he's giving the sermon and he's giving a supernatural explanation. That's just a different one than the one that actually exists in the show. It is a TV show. Right. Um, but nonetheless, that it is at a time where we have become so quote unquote scientific or scientismific, I think would probably be the better <laughs> word. Uh, if that is a word, I don't think it is. <laughs> I may have just created it. Um, this and more empirical that anything that we can't verify that we don't believe. I, we've talked about this on the, on the main episodes of Act and Unwind with regard to some of these absolutely horrific shooting mass shootings that we've lost some of the vocabulary to be able to talk about this because there's a reticence generally i think to describe things like that just as evil uh even though i think that is a perfectly apt description for a lot of these actions uh, because we've lost that moral vocabulary we have a harder time talking about them and making sense of them because we want a reason. We want a reason why these things happened. One that we can wrap our brains around. One that we can grasp. One that we can feel that we can hold on to. And we don't have that in a lot of these situations because we've rejected any explanation beyond the empirical. So I have a question uh, related, I think, um, but a question for you guys. Uh, it's more of a general question, but I think it'll get us arguing and we'll, we'll tie into this sort of stuff. But just what did you think of this season? Um, I, all of us clearly are fans. We've watched all, all every episode, every season. Um, but what is, what is your, like, you know, helicopter view take of the season uh, compared to others? You know, how, how would you rate it? Uh, you know, how would you criticize it? What, are there any flaws as well? Uh, with this one compared to others or just in terms of storytelling? 
you could really see the seams in this season in a way. You had these four different storylines going on at the same time. And, you know, maybe some of that had to do with COVID productions, you know, reducing the amount of actors on set, mm. that sort of thing. There's, there's practical considerations to that storytelling. But at the same time, you're spending time with characters that you've come to love over the past three seasons. And there's kind of that built-in equity that you've got with those characters. And so it makes those experiences a little bit more tolerable, to me at least. Um, some may say that the, the storytelling is, is slow and you have so much buildup to some, some big episodes. But I think you need that runway to establish these emotional connections even more. And I think that just makes the, the back half of the season that much more powerful. Yeah, I, I think it's the best season since the first. Um, and I, I do have a, a very special place for, on some ways, I think the third season um, is probably the weakest, but it also had like the shopping mall and how perfectly it captured shopping malls and the culture around shopping malls was just so perfect um, that I have that sentimental draw to the the third season. But I, I think it was the best since the first. I, I, I think unquestionably the first season of this show is the best season of this show because, again, it was just such a unexpected surprise. Um, my wife had watched it. It was actually on a train, an Amtrak train between St. Louis and Chicago, which is about five hours. And I got through about four and a half episodes of the show. And I think I finished binging the whole thing later that night. Like I stayed up till 1.30 in the morning to finish watching it because I was just so captivated by it. As as someone who grew up on a lot of that 80s popular culture, it just so perfectly tapped into it. Uh, But I thought... What I really liked about this season, and maybe this is where we can get also into the the other part that I really wanted to talk about, um, the, the criticisms I would make, I think Daniel is, is generally right about some of the scenes. I think some of that is out of their control. I think the uh, failure – and again, I, you know, when you make a show like this, you never know if it's going to be popular or not. Rob Long, um, written for years for National Review, uh, and he was a producer of Cheers – and said, so, like, Hollywood always likes to pretend that they know when something's going to be a hit. They have no idea. They have absolutely no idea. If you watch the, another Netflix series, The Movies That Made Us, um, you see how many of these movies that are beloved almost didn't get made. Like, Back to the Future almost does not get made and only gets made because Robert Zemeckis had this totally unexpected hit in Romancing the Stone. And because he got that, he finally got the ability to make Back to the Future. Um, it is – there's so much you just don't know. But one of the failures in a sense, at least when they knew after the first season was so popular, to plot out and try to record and film as much of the show as they could, kind of like they did with the Harry Potter movies, so that we are dealing with young actors. Yeah. The aging is so much more noticeable. Uh, and as a result, you know, Daniel Craig, they've done how many James Bond movies with Daniel Craig over how long a period of time? It was 2006 Six. when Casino Royale came out. And it's just the difference in his age is just not all that noticeable. But it is with kids. And I think that is one of the only things that really extracted me out of it is uh, especially Lucas's younger sister when she appears. Like, I think she's supposed to still be like, you know, in junior high. It's like, come on. Like, <laughs> that is the least believable of, uh, of I think, all of them. Yeah. So my my take is I, I did like it. Um, I like all the seasons, but I think it was the weakest season for a variety of reasons. One of which is exactly what Dan mentioned. I just I think it is so fragmented. Uh, they try to tie together these 
three to four different stories. And it basically just seems like the real story is what's happening in Hawkins. And the other stuff is just kind of there. Now, thankfully, the other stuff is also enjoyable. So it's not like all bad. Like, I, you know, I wrote my whole post about one of these other basically side stories. But, I, you know, the contribution they were supposedly making, I just wasn't convinced of. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, to get back to uh, Eddie and our discussion of the guitar solo. So he does this as it's him and Dustin providing a distraction for, you know, the other kids who are going to go after this villain uh, who they refer to as Vecna, which is a character from Dungeons and Dragons. Um, also, you know, formerly uh, a child who was taken in by this, um, you know, uh, Dr. Brenner. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Brenner. Yeah. Who, and who he is, and he's the only one and trained Eleven to use her psychic powers. So. And, and the only one with, uh, as far as we can tell, naturally occurring supernatural powers. Yeah. So, uh, so he, you know, they're, they're going after him. Eleven finds a way to kind of, you know, project her, astral project herself to the situation. Um, that's okay. I suppose a little bit believable. And her story was very interesting as far as getting her backstory. But so they do this big distraction, right? To get the bats away from everybody, basically. Uh, they succeed uh, with this awesome guitar solo. They get back in the trailer and they're like, okay, time to get back to Hawkins, the real Hawkins, outside of the Upside Down. This gets safe. He hoists Dustin through this hole in the top of the roof, which goes into the top of the roof of mm-hmm. the real trailer and the real Hawkins, and he goes back to the real world. And then he says, sorry, man, I got to go be a hero. And then he runs out, and he doesn't even pick up his guitar again. He doesn't, like, he just kind of runs out there and gets killed by these bats. And I don't, I, I thought I, I was not sold on that mattering at all. It yeah. was just kind of this weird sort of turn where, like, you know, you you already have the implausibility, but it was awesome of the guitar solo, you know, having this like amazing effect. But then, you know, you end up with this guy basically wasting his life, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, and and un- this unfortunate trope of the outcast having to like sacrifice himself to prove his value, and you know, th- this sort of thing, where I don't know, there there's, and I mentioned this in my post. There is, they do a good job really giving the atmosphere of supernatural evil. And they, they have these appeals to natural good, you know, to virtue and that sort of thing. But I don't know that this world of the show has a place for supernatural good. Um, and, you know, if anything, they're trying to fight might with might. And it doesn't work out so well uh, at, the end, at the end of the season. You know, Eleven is basically just trying to be more powerful than Vecna, and it's maybe a draw, though he kind of wins, right? Um, and that's that's where it, it leaves it. Maybe season five, they have some plans, right? Um, but I don't know if it's a world that can handle that, and that's a really interesting and an, and an unfortunately kind of bleak uh, world that gets back to this point of, of scientism, right? Like, even though they have the supernatural evil, they still have a quasi-scientific background to it although not the whole other dimension of course but um but the idea that well how are we going to get good you know it's more of like an anime (laughs) solution of like we're gonna have a clash of beams we're gonna be more powerful we're gonna you know that sort of thing and it doesn't have this um well frankly it doesn't have the overcoming evil with good it's overcoming power with power that is a different dynamic and it's not the same thing so let me say this 
Um, I thought you were going to go about the guitar solo thing in a different direction, which is somebody pointed out that this happens and takes place in 1986. Uh, Metallica's album Master of Puppets is released on March 2nd, 1986. And this whole storyline in this season transpires during spring break week. So I think we could assume no more than three or four weeks later. And Eddie has apparently learned Kirk Hammett's incredible guitar He's a solo. Prodigy, man. Yeah, I mean, like that—that that is the real loss of, <laughs> of Eddie. There is that this guy may have been like the new Ingve Malmsteen um, of the world. He's an incredible guitarist. Um, but but I I mostly jest here. Uh, what I would say is that I I largely agree with you about the supernatural good point, but. I think this is a way to draw into the part about the villain Vecna that I want to talk about is he when you first meet him, he is an orderly at this uh, facility and you're only seeing it as L is uh, 11 is remembering her past and remembering her time at this facility in Hawkins with Dr. Brenner. And this all is getting filled in. So we're all getting backstory on all of this as well. There have been some interesting things to suggest that like Vecna has been the villain all along and all of this and these other things are kind of his minions. And you know, we, we don't know a lot of it. Presumably a lot of it will be settled by the fifth season. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, when she is in these power competitions or supernatural power competitions with the other kids, the other numbered kids, he suggests to her – to find a memory that, you know, makes her like sad and angry and use that as the source of her power. And the way that I read the way that she's conjuring memories is she's conjuring memories of essentially her birth and of the fact that her mother, troubled as she was, loved her, is supernatural good. She's drawing Mm -hmm. on the good memories in order to, yes, be more powerful or at least be able to match the power of the supernatural evil. But she's not doing it by drawing on the same kind of dark and, uh, you know, evilish motivations, the power that supposedly Vecna is uh, is using to be as powerful as he is. I like that, but I don't know if I buy it because she's also drawing on the memory of being ripped away from her mother <laughs> and, and taken from her. Uh, so there's that trauma and that loss that I think she's supposed to be drawing from. But... But maybe you're right, and maybe but that's why not maybe both? that's the angle. Yeah, why not both? Um, so that would be great. Um, I would love to see more of that. Um, that could be a dynamic of, you know, bringing in, uh, you know, to quote uh, Huey Lewis in the news, the power of love. Yes, uh, to give another Back to the Future well, reference. Okay, so <laughs> let's go. Unless Daniel, you want to throw anything in on that? Um, I, I have another point before I'll get to the Vecna speech. Okay, and that is that is one of the criticisms that I have seen of um, of this explanation is basically we're near. The, uh, in the final episode, all two and a half hours of it, um, which I will say there were other episodes in the season where I agree also on the pacing stuff that like I felt like it was, you know, it's like Stephen King at this point. He desperately needs an editor. Um, <laughs> they, I think they probably could have cleaved some time off of some of these episodes. Although I will say for the final like two and a half hours, it was a two and a half hour movie that I did not feel like I was looking at my watch during. Yeah. So you have this criticism that, you know, Mike – basically also helps. I think it could support my argument about supernatural good as well, that it is like, you know, we're saved by the power of love, right? That he expresses his love for Elle, and as a result, she finds the, you know, the ability to match Vecna okay. in, in the underworld. Um, 
I know that this is a trope that again, I, I'm 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 less in, I am less. I don't uh, think convinced. they sold it to me though. Fair like enough. I, maybe they were trying to work it in, but even that storyline. Uh, you know, it's coming from this drawing that Will made for Mike. Will is struggling. Uh, there's been official statements about this, but it's very clear if you know what you're watching. He's struggling with his sexuality. Mm-hmm. He is, Mike is his best friend. He feels a very close bond to him, and he wrote he made this drawing of them, you know, as warriors and Dungeons and Dragons. And Mike is the leader, and he has this heart by him. He says that's because you're the heart, not yeah. because yeah. I love you, right? So he's he's. He's using his own confused Let, affection for Will to prop up Will and Eleven's relationship, and then he's using that to encourage Mike that you need to encourage Eleven, and she's going to get through it because you're the heart and it's your love and all that sort of thing. But I think the whole point, the background of that is that it's all a lie, right? Like, like Will is not never able to be honest with Mike, um, and... I don't know. Mike's kind of a wet blanket anyway, so I don't Stipulate. believe this love can be that powerful. Stipulate. I want to make. <laughs> I want to make just a, a a broader point about that whole save by the power of love as a trope. That I find that it is something that is just whenever it comes up is almost universally rejected, and I think it is one of the um, clear bases of. And I think only real criticisms that I have meaningfully heard about what is one of my favorite movies, which is Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, that you have that, you know, we can't scientifically quantify love. And I've just never been particularly bothered by this. I think it comes back to the point I was making earlier that there is – I do think there is something supernatural about love. And it can be expressed in very bad ways. It can be motivated in very bad ways. But I think that this is a way that, you know, again, lacking the kind of – specifically a a religious, a Christian, a moral vocabulary in programming like this to gesture at those kinds of supernatural things and at least give us the ability – to interpret some of this stuff in a more supernatural way. So I've just never been bothered by this power of love thing. To again, quote Huey Lewis in the news. Oh, yeah, I'm well, a big fan of, of the news. <laughs> well, I think where you get, get more problems with that is more just in storytelling structure. Tacking on, um, you know, this montage of Eleven and Max together. You know, they don't, they, they have that relationship in season three. But that they don't play that up in season four at all yeah. until they exist. need to. Yeah, right. And then they flash back to it. It's like, oh, we just we just need to tack They're on these emotional states. Apart. They're a country apart, basically the entire season. Clearly, um, it, it can be done poorly. Yeah, uh, you know that, that is not. I'm not defending it in every circumstance sure. too. It's like it, it in a way it reminds me, and especially in the way that you suggested. There's a great line in the um, the movie Thank You for Smoking, where you know uh, Aaron Eckhart and Rob Lowe are working to try to get cigarettes back in movies, and they're going to do this one in outer space. And one of them makes the point about like, well, you know, wouldn't they uh, if they lit a cigarette blow up in a you know uh, you know all pure oxygen environment? And Rob Lowe is like. You're probably right. Yeah, that's all right. It's an easy fix. So just thank God we invented the whatever device, right? So you get those kinds of lazy storytelling fixes. So I, I, yeah. I will stipulate those points. Yeah, and it can it can be even well intended, kind of a Deus Ex Machina, right? Where it's like, oh, out of nowhere, they've got love, and now they can succeed. You know. Um, so I think you have to play it up a little more. And in their defense, I do think they did it. But the problem is the backstory they provided for again is this kind of lie, um, not in a malicious sense, but in the sense of 
you know, Will really struggling and not knowing how to be honest. And then he kind of takes something that was supposed to be special for Mike and says, oh, it was Eleven's idea. And yeah, I drew it, but it's all about like her perception of you. And like, so you get this really kind of twisted backstory to it. So they have a genuine backstory, but then it doesn't sell the the win for me. And I guess, you know, it didn't actually result in a win. Again, like it, this is kind of their Empire Strikes Back, perhaps, uh, to give yes. an appropriate 80s uh, reference there that uh, this is a time where, you know, the good guys really didn't come out on top. And so... Um, well, I want I want to get to, I think as we wrap up here, yeah. the one part we've not talked about that I really did want to talk about um, and I want to get your thoughts on as well is I thought one of the best presented segments in this entire season is the very end of so the season. I'm sure if you're listening, if, if you're still listening at this point, I don't need to explain this, but I'm going to explain it anyway, uh, where the season's divided into two. You have seven episodes and then two very long episodes and the end of that seventh episode um, one, this is an example, I think, of something being very well-paced, that it ends ex- basically with 20 minutes of just exposition, of the villain explaining how we got there, who he is, and what is going on. And I never for a moment felt like it was taking 20 minutes. I thought it was incredibly compelling. And I thought what was compelling is in the way that he talked about uh, humanity, I thought there were a whole bunch of different elements of things that I think we would all here be at Acton critical of in their manifestations in the world. I thought, again, I'll put it um, less, you know, Dylan, you're the philosopher. I'll let you contextualize (laughs) it in the world of philosophers, and I will put it in the world I know, which is pop culture. There's a little bit of uh, Agent Smith from The Matrix in it. There's a little bit of the Joker from The Dark Knight in it. Um, the, the, you know, the only the agent Smith being basically human beings are a disease. The Joker part being um, his Vecna's, you know, the only sane way to live in this world is without rules that, you know, the rules are the problem. Mm-hmm. And then I think and this is where I'm open to uh, either of you telling me that I am I'm way out over my skis in this interpretation of it. I get a little. uh I think the imagery is very clear, and I'm wondering if you think there's anything more to justify it, of uh, Lucifer being cast out of heaven as L sends him into this oh. other dimension, right? So, like, this is – he is – you know, he is a human. He is one of these. Um, clearly, he has malign intentions. I mean, you see that he is actually the one who killed his entire family. But assumedly, you know, you know we don't really know his from birth origin story. We just know basically picking up when he was like an eight-year-old boy or something like that. Of embracing this evilness, this desire to be more powerful than anyone else around him, to change the rules, to rewrite society, to, you know, it's it's uh, spiders is the thing that he's obsessed with because they're efficient predators and all of that. Um, but you get uh, his, I think in his descriptions of humanity, in his understanding of of human beings uh and then in the imagery of l casting him into this other dimension that let's be honest looks like hell uh i drew some of that out of it and i just way out over my skis in that interpretation um so i hadn't thought of that angle um 
I definitely think they're 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 at least drawing on some of that, right? Um, but they did a good job actually of creating an original character out of I think a lot of a lot of influences. I will say though, as you mentioned already, um, even before Doctor Brenner started experimenting on him, uh, uh, you know Vecna or one or I can't remember his uh, real name. He was already kind of evil. Like he kills his whole family, or well, except for his his father, who he frames for it, um, with his you know psychic powers and all. Henry that. Creel. Yes. Okay. So Henry. Um, Henry is real. He's sociopathic, right? Um, he has no conscience, and he is just fascinated by what he can do with the powers he has, and he doesn't think about whether it's right or wrong, really, very much. So even his speech, he kind of has. Um, you know, a bit of that Agent Smith and um, uh, some of the other references. But he also, I, I was reminded, not to say that Rousseau is sociopathic, but I was reminded a little bit of Rousseau's discourse on inequality, where basically just everything that is wrong and terrible with the world is because of society and its rules. Um, that these have taken us out of our natural, you know, goodness, basically. Now, that's where I think... Vecna is very different. He doesn't really care about goodness. Uh, so to give Rousseau some credit, I do think he did. Uh, his very weird idea of what that would be. Um, it also reminded me a bit, um, although not in a technological way, but a bit of uh, maybe an unfair caricature of, but a, a bit of the transhumanist movement of this idea that humanity uh, is uh, deficient. Um, humanity is... You know, not to be regarded as having, uh, you know, this innate value just for what it is, but rather it's something that we have to transcend. Or maybe, maybe to be a little more fair to the transhumanists, a bit of a Nietzschean Ubermensch uh, sort of model. Uh, and of course, in his view, he is that that Ubermensch. Uh, he thought maybe Eleven could could do it with him, but he was like, ah, no, I want to be better than everyone, right? So he has this kind of this understanding of I'm going to transcend my own humanity. And not in the sense of raising humanity up to greater moral and spiritual heights, uh, but to leave it behind um, and to be something categorically different and to view humanity itself as the problem and something that needs to be overcome or absorbed within his new creation. So there, there is definitely maybe if not a Luciferian sort of metaphor, maybe a Antichrist sort of metaphor of him wanting to uh, create the world in his own image um, or recreate the world in his own image and demand everyone else be subject to him. Yeah. Like Dylan, I hadn't, I hadn't really considered the, the Lucifer imagery, but I think that is very apt. I, I think the strength of, of Vecna is something that we haven't had too much in the show so far is this sort of evil personified, you know, the, the mind flare has as kind of the, this overall big bad previously, was just kind of this construct. Uh, the the closest we got was was Billy kind of embodying that at the end of one of the episodes in season three, and that's just a, a great scene. But you need to have those stakes, those human stakes, and we and we see when when Vecna gets cast into what is presumably the pre upside down world. Um, you know, it hasn't turned red and all that yet. It's orange. He he meets this sort of seemingly greater evil that is the mind flare, but that doesn't matter because you know he is he is this character that we can latch onto, that we can see, clearly see his motivations. And I think that's hugely important for the story and makes, you know, this exposition scene all that more, much more important and sort of 
not a slog to get through, like so many exposition scenes in shows and movies can be. Well, and it tied together so many threads of the story in such a great way. Like yeah. it was it was really a good way of unifying Despite, you know, the problems I think there are with the fragmentation of the story, it really did draw a lot of it together in a very satisfying way. Set up some payoffs. And, yeah. in a, in a, in a, and from a production standpoint as well, like I said, it, it is to do like five minutes of exposition can seem like it's taking forever. And they did this over 20 minutes. And it just, it I was compelled the entire time. And perhaps we'll wrap up, we should wrap up here, because we have been self-indulgent now for uh, almost an hour talking about this show. But uh, I will end with a criticism, which is at the very end of that great 20 minutes, um, you see uh, Henry one becoming Vecna, becoming Scarred. You see him in like the current time, like the time that the show has actually been set in 1986, in the Upside Down, and you have the zoom in to the tattoo of 001 on his wrist, um, which, two thoughts. One, his whole entire body is like scarred and covered in these tentacle things, but it just so happens the one area that has the tattoo is not covered up. Again, just in case for anybody in the audience who didn't get it, <laughs> like it was just so unnecessary. And it only reminded me of one of my favorite lines from a later season episode of The Simpsons where they did their take on The Departed. And the last thing in the episode is Ralph, you know, because if you've seen The Departed, the rat is running around everywhere. At the very end of the episode, Ralph just says, the rat represents obviousness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that that was there, the rat and departed. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think we all really enjoy the show and hopefully we'll all be back with you in we don't know how much time to talk about the fifth season of the show, which I'm told makes a time jump to the 1990s, which is great for at least for two reasons. One, we could start to get some really great 90s culture in there. Can't wait to see for a show that's worked music in so wonderfully, uh, like brought Kate Bush and Metallica back on the charts. Um, to work in some Nirvana in there would be absolutely fantastic and will perhaps allow me to a little bit more believe the ages of the kids in the show correspond with how old they're actually supposed to be. But we will call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of Act and Unwind. And we remind you again, if you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Daniel. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next time. <laughs>